right, good evening. Thank you, Taylor, very much. Appreciate you leading us, serving us. So we have a big task tonight. I, uh, I had to come up to the study this afternoon to prep for this, and I was talk, telling my kids bye, and Josiah's like, yeah, but those sermons are easy. And I'm like, yeah, the whole Bible in 35 minutes. <laughs> easy for you to say, little buddy. <laughs> But here's what I want to do. We want to look at the big picture. And I think it's really important for us to grasp that the story of Scripture is one big story. Lots of little stories, 40 different human authors, but really one author, right? One divine author telling one story. And so what I want to do tonight is just give you some, some tools, hopefully. We're calling these tonight a Sunday Night Equip. So hopefully to equip you to give you some tools, some hooks as you read the Bible and particularly the Old Testament and as you teach the Bible as well, uh, just to help us keep this big picture in mind. Because I think we get the New Testament pretty clearly, right? But the New Testament is really just the tip of the iceberg. Y'all seen that picture of the iceberg, right? You see a little, it's actually quite large, but underneath it's massive. And we really can't appreciate the New Testament without understanding and appreciating the Old Testament. So we'll focus a good bit on the Old Testament tonight and it's also vital just to know where we are like where we are in the story what's our place as we look backward and as we look forward so we can be uh, fully devoted disciples and it's also important to understand scripture rightly and I think one of the things I love about it is it helps us keep Christ central so it shows how Christ really is the hero of every story and there's many ways to summarize the story of scripture uh, we could look at different themes that connect Genesis to Revelation. Maybe you were here back in, I don't remember, sometime in early spring where it was a communion sermon and I traced the theme of the Lamb. And really it goes from the garden all the way to the New Jerusalem. Or you could look at the theme of rest, uh, the theme of the temple. I kind of hinted uh, this morning at the theme of the presence of God, the starts in Eden and then the tabernacle and the temple and, and then no temple and then Jesus and then the church and then ultimately the whole world. There's uh, sacrifice, the theme of sacrifice, again, begins in the garden and in many ways goes all the way to the end. Uh, the theme of king, that we'll see some of these overlapping, but one of the main ones, if not the main one, is the theme of covenant. The co theme of covenant really is the backbone of scripture. It's what keeps it all together. It's the, it's the plot structure. So it's an important one to keep in mind. So what is a covenant? Well, there's lots of technical, technical definitions, but I think an easy way to think of a covenant, it's just a relationship with responsibilities or even more simply, what is a covenant? It's just a commitment. And there are all kinds of covenants in the Bible, some of them for with people. But what I want to focus on tonight is a few of the main covenants between God and his people. In fact, I want to look at the five main covenants. And I'm uh, calling this Kingdom Through Covenant, and I'm stealing the title from this book here uh, that probably not many of you will want to read. Uh, but it's Kingdom Through Covenant. It's a really good book. Again, I, there's better, smaller books that we'll talk about later. But I thought this title was really good because this is what God is doing. God is working out his kingdom through the biblical covenants. We'll see that. It'll make more sense in about 30 minutes, but wanted to give credit where credit's due with that foot-breaking book. So here's God's kingdom. It is, it can be defined as God's people. You don't have to write this down because you'll, you'll see it on a slide here in a minute, but it's God's people in God's place, following God's precepts, enjoying God's presence, all to God's praise. And so we're going to look at those P's. We're going to look at these six P's 
And each of the covenants is a way to try to move us along through the story of Scripture. So God is working out his kingdom, and he's doing it through the covenants of Scripture. And we'll look at it, these six P's in mind as we walk through. People, place, precepts, the presence of God, previous covenant connections, and then pointers to Christ. So I've got some slides for you. Let me go and move now to the one. I'm not sure if you'll be able to see this one, but it starts in creation. They'll get better after this. Creation, fall, Noah, Abraham, Old Covenant, Davidic, New Covenant foretold, and New Covenant inaugurated. And so the rest of the night, we're going to run. This is going to be a fire hydrant. We're going to run through these covenants, and I'm going to give you one main verse, maybe, maybe two or three on a couple of them, but really one main verse with each covenant. And I encourage you to jot it down, become familiar with it. These six verses, these six key ones, are really important to understanding your Bible. I try to allude to them quite a bit in my preaching on Sunday morning, but I want to unpack why they're important. They're like little hinge points, turning points in the story of Scripture. So let's start with creation. Creation in Genesis chapter 1, start where all good stories start in the beginning. And the Bible actually doesn't call creation a covenant. A lot of people think there's a covenant there, and there's certainly the elements of a covenant, but either way, it's covenant-like. Right, And of course, all stories have to begin at the beginning. And we start with creation. The key verse here is up top, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. For the sake of time, we're actually not going to read that one. But that's where God creates mankind in his image and gives us the commission. Actually, I lied. Let's read it. Go ahead and open Genesis 1. We're going to make our way front to back. But let's just read it that way. We're not assuming anything. The goal is that after some study, we can assume all these verses together. And we could say Genesis 1.26, and you know that it's really the first commission that says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There's a lot we could say. In fact, there's a lot we could say about all of these covenants, but we're going to go really fast. But again, whether or not we call it a covenant, the Bible doesn't use the word covenant, but it's clearly covenant-like, and it's clearly extremely important. So let's look at our six Ps. Hopefully you can read those. If not, feel free to scoot up if you want to. Uh, But again, people, place, precepts, presence, previous covenants, pointers to Christ. And so who are the people here? Well, Adam and Eve. And what are some things to note about the people? Well, it says they're made in God's image. And most basically, this means that they were to reflect God. They were to represent him. But the notion of image to Moses' first hearers, it would have been a familiar one, this idea of the image of God. They were used, images were used. So there would be pagan temples all over the world. And uh, they would have these various images in them, various cult statues. And also pagan kings, and in the ancient world, oftentimes pagan kings would represent gods. And so there would be the sun god and the king that represented the sun god. And so they would put an image of the sun god in the temple where that king ruled. And it was, again, a reflection of his presence. But even more important in the ancient Near East, what would happen is there would be a king who would go around and would conquer an area, again, going and colonizing, conquer an area outside of his territory. And one of the ways that he would show that he owned that territory now was putting an image up either of himself or of the God whom he represented, staking a claim. I own this territory. And so when you have passers-by, they would see the image and think, okay, that God represented by that king owns that territory. Let's make known of that and be careful unless we want to start a fight. So it was a familiar idea. And here we see that God makes humans in the image of the one true God. And where does God place his image? 
everywhere, right? Everywhere there is a human being, the image of God is there. Sort of fighting words for the false religions of the time of Moses. Because what he's saying is, I own all the territory. Because my image is everywhere. Everywhere you look on the earth, you'll find a human being. Therefore, it's mine. I own it. But Adam is also thinking of people, uh, the first human, obviously, but he's also a representative. So what Adam does has stakes for all of humanity. So think of Romans 5. Because of Adam's sin, we are born sinners. Now, we don't take long to sin ourselves, but we, born, we are born sinners because of what Adam did. Adam was a, a representative human being. So he represented all of humanity. Let's think about place for a minute. You have, I have here the garden sanctuary. Of course, it's the Garden of Eden, but I think we have more going on as we learn in the story of Scripture because there's these hints and allusions that it's not only a garden, but it's actually a sanctuary. It's actually a temple. So Adam and Eve are called to guard and keep the garden. And if you knew your Bible really, really well, you would know that those two verbs in Hebrew only occur in one other place together. And it's that of the priests in the temple. The priests were called to guard and keep the temple. So we have an idea that Adam is some sort of priest here in his special place. There's also allusions with where the trees are placed and where the river went, the way the water went that, you, that are picked up later in the, the temple. We don't have time to explore. But there's probably 10 or 12 hints that the garden was the first temple, sacred space. What about the precepts? Again, precepts just means what are, what are God's commandments? What is he expecting of his people? Well, it was his word. And I always want to point out, especially as parents, that it was an ocean of yeses in the Garden of Eden. There was really one clear no. Don't touch that tree or you'll die. And of course, that's what they did. They disregarded God's precepts. Adam was called to guard the garden, as we talked about this morning. Now they are guarded from the garden. So they're east of Eden now. Previous covenant connections, well, not applicable, right? Because this is the very beginning of the story. What about pointers to Christ? Again, you could, we could spend a class just on the pointers to Christ from the book of Genesis. But let's just mention a couple of the most important ones. I think first, just like Adam, Christ is a representative figure. And we pick that up in Romans chapter 5. If you want to jot it down, Romans 5, 12, really to 19. We don't have time to go there, but that's where just as Adam brought death, the second Adam brings life. First Adam brings condemnation. He was a type, Romans 5, 14, the type of the one who was to come, Christ, who brings righteousness. So Adam is the representative of all humanity. And within that fallen humanity, Christ, the last Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, is the head of the new humanity. And so all who are in Christ then, he's the representative of the new humanity. Both are representative figures. Uh, look, if you got Genesis open, the first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. I hope you know this one. If not, get to know this one. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. He's speaking to the snake and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, Genesis 3.15, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so right from the beginning here, we have this hint that there's going to be a royal figure, a ruler, one who will have authority who's going to crush the head of the serpent, even though he'll be hurt. His heel will be bruised, pointing forward, as we'll see, to Christ. 
All right, let's keep moving. Covenant with Noah. That's Genesis 1. Covenant with Noah here in Genesis 6. So flip over a couple pages to Genesis chapter 6. Here's where we have the first use of the word covenant in Genesis 6, 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So first use of the word covenant here and who are the people, or excuse me, yeah, people, it's just Noah and his family. And by the way, let's just push pause and think of how merciful this was. God had every right to wipe out humanity. God in the Trinity was perfectly sufficient and satisfied without us. We've got to remember that. Father, Son, and Spirit have existed for all eternity. And he could have just went back to that. Could have wiped out humanity, wiped out the earth. He would have been perfectly just to do so, but he doesn't. Because of the sin of mankind, he judges the earth. The flood was just brutal, brutal, brutal judgment. And then after this covenant in Genesis 8, we read that actually man's heart is still sinful. So nothing changed, yet God is grace. This is mercy here. So you have Noah. In many ways, Noah is like a new Adam, right? It's a fresh start. Noah and his family. What's the place? Well, it's the ark and it's the earth, the new earth. It's been purged now. But still east of Eden, still not with the Lord the way it's supposed to be. The precepts, really, it's the same thing that he told Adam. In fact, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Notice the similarity of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you. Well, actually, skip down to verse 7. So fill the earth, be fruitful. Exact same thing God told Adam. Verse 7, he says, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And he's going to have dominion just like Adam. In many ways, he's a new Adam. What about the presence of God? God is still removed, still east of Eden. The garden is no more. And so the question is, can Noah and his family, the new humanity, all of the descendants, all of the people of the world, will they be able to return to God's special presence? Previous covenant connections, the next P, again, he's like a new Adam. Uh, Both of them blew it, but they both received the same commission. It's interesting, both of them blew it with an indulgence of fruit. Adam and Eve with their fruit, and then Noah gets drunk. Remember the story with the fruit of the vine, ends up shamed, naked. Not much has changed. What about pointers to Christ? Well, the sign of the covenant is what? The seasons and the rainbow, right? And so every season we ought to be reminded God is faithful. Every rainbow, God is merciful. Every rainbow we see, we ought to think, I deserve to die and God has been gracious to us. And it's interesting because in Hebrew, there is no word for rainbow. It's just bow. It's like bow and arrow. And there may be, maybe reading a little bit into it, but it is interesting that God lays down his bow, lays down his weapon of war. And it's no longer pointing towards the earth. In fact, it's pointing up. Some scholars speak of a, a, I don't know of a better way to say this, but a self-maledictory curse, a self-cursing curse that it's pointing up. If there is any weapon pointing, it's actually God pointing the weapon at himself with his laying down of the bow. Pointing ultimately, I think, to the cross of Christ where God himself did take the curse on our behalf. All right, that's Noah. Let's keep moving. Abraham. Turn over to Genesis 12, a couple pages. 
We're going to move fast, and I'd love to have time for a little questions, but we'll see. Promise with Abraham, again, these are just so important verses for the rest of the story of the Bible. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, this is Genesis 12, 1, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In other words, he's going to bless them. We could just summarize. He's going to bless Abraham and his family. Verse 3 I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice the twofold agenda here. God's continuing to be gracious. He's going to bless Abraham and his family. And through that family, he's going to bless all the peoples of the world. This is God's plan of redemption, starting right here in Genesis 12. This is the blueprint for the rest of redemptive history. Bless Abraham and his family, and through that family, bless the whole world. So who are the people? Well, now we move to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their families. Abram is a pagan, and he's called to leave his country. God would make him a great nation, and this word nation is a special word. There's a lot of words for nation, but this word means an organized community of people with governmental, political, and social structure. Legit nation. That's the promise. God promises a massive family. In fact, flip over to Genesis 22. Verse 17. I love this verse. I've got a painting in my study with this, with the, this verse depicted. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So Abraham's family is going to be as many, as, as numerous as the stars of the sky of the sand of the sea. Abraham's family will be massive. But it's not just going to be Abraham's family, right? It's going to be through Abraham's family. The whole nations will be blessed. In fact, what we will learn is the nations will be included in Abraham's family. We see that as early as Genesis 35. Look over there. Still looking at people, the people of this covenant. Who are they? They're massive, and ultimately they're international. Look at Genesis 35, verse 11. Now he speaks to Jacob and reiterates the same promises multiple times in 3511. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. So not only Israelites, but a company of nations, all kinds of nations ultimately will come from the family of of Abraham. What about place? Well, Abraham doesn't have a place. He leaves his place, but he's promised the land of Canaan. What about precepts? Well, there's no law yet. We still have the word of God, but Abraham is told to walk before the Lord, be blameless. And there's a really important commandment given there in Genesis 17, and it's the commandment of circumcision. It is now the sign of the covenant. Abraham, you're going to have kids on the eighth day, circumcise them to set them apart from the nations and to show they are part of your family. Really important. What about presence? Well, he again, he's with the patriarchs, but there's still no centralized location for God's special presence. What about previous covenant connections? Well, in many ways, Abraham is undoing the sin of Adam. In fact, there's a Jewish commentary that says, it's kind of summarizing what God said in Genesis, and it says, I'll send Adam, and then Adam screws it up, I'll send Abraham to fix it all. 
And that's really what God is doing. In fact, the word curse happens five times in Genesis 1 to 11. And the word bless happens five times in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Through Abraham, God is undoing the problem of humanity that started with Adam. A couple other things to note about the previous covenant connections. Now we know in Genesis 3.15, this offspring of the woman, now we know will also be an offspring of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We mentioned here in Genesis 35, but it's also mentioned in Genesis chapter 17 that uh, there'll be a king that'll come from Abraham. And so long before the kingship, right? Think that comes much later. That's Solomon, David, all that later in the story. But way back in Genesis 17, verse 6, and Genesis 17, verse 16, and Genesis 35, 12, and 13, that kings are going to come from this family. What else in terms of pointers to Christ now? Sorry, I'm at pointers to Christ. So kings will come. In fact, as we trace the story of just Genesis, we're still really asking, okay, when will this offspring of the woman come to defeat evil? Well, now we know it's Abraham, it's an offspring of Isaac, it's an offspring of Jacob. And then we turn to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. We might think, well, it's going to be Joseph or a descendant of Joseph, but it's actually not. It's actually who? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so at the end of Genesis, where you have the 12 sons, you have read this about Judah in Genesis 49.10, the scepter... Again, think of royal language. It's like he's going to be some type of king. It won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of not just Israel, the obedience of the peoples. So this offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent is going to be a ruler, and not only a ruler of Abraham's family, but a company of nations as well. He will be an international king whenever he comes. And then you have Genesis 15. I wish we had more time. Golly, time goes fast. Remember Genesis 15, read this on your own sometime, but remember the, the ceremony where uh, God's making a, a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15. We read 12, the whole section of 12 to 17. But in 15 is that famous story where he takes the animals and cuts them up and separates them. It's all bloody and nasty. And this was, again, a normal practice that any ancient Near Eastern person would know. And, and God passes through the torn animals. And that's what all, again, all pagan kings would do this ceremony. It was a way of, you know, shaking hands. They didn't have contracts and lawyers back then. So they did this sort of thing. And remember what happens. Abraham goes through and Abraham's what? Taking a nap. <laughs> What's Abraham saying there, though? What's God saying, though? God is saying, here's the deal. You walk through and you say, I'll keep my part of the deal. And if I don't, may I end up like these animals? And then the next covenant party would walk through. This is all in Genesis 15 walk through and say, let me keep my end of the deal or may I end up like these animals slain. Again, in terms of the self-maledictory oath, God alone walks through in essence saying, I'm going to keep my part of the deal and his part of the deal because he's over there sleeping. Again, pointing to Galatians 3.13, I think Christ became a curse for us. God himself took both parts, right? He was faithful. We weren't. He still self-maledictory oath pointing towards Christ. All right, we got to keep moving. That's, that's Abraham. Next one, I'm calling the Old Covenant because that's what Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 3, Exodus 19, an extremely important passage. Let's turn over there. Keep turning in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus. So moving along the story now, the people of Israel are formed. Let's pick up at verse 4, Exodus 19, 4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, who are the people? Now we have the nation. Remember what Abraham was promised? You'll be a nation. What does, happens with Abraham's family? They become a nation and God frees them. And so we have the nation of Israel under Moses. And they're called to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They mediate between God and the people. That was to be their task, their vocation. What is the place? Well, after the giving of the law, Joshua leads them into the promised land. Finally, they're at their place. What are the precepts? Now very clear, the law of Moses but the heart of that covenant being the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, which we just read in 19. So it moves into 20 to 24 with all the law and then the building of the tabernacle. That's the presence, Exodus 25 to 40. And now God is present with his people through the sacrificial system. That's all in the law, the old covenant, the book of Leviticus. What about previous covenant connections? Well, God's making good on his promises to Abraham. In fact, here's what Deuteronomy 10 says, verse 22 says, our fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The old covenant is God making good on his promise to Abraham. They became a nation. They entered their land. What about pointers to Christ? Well, we don't have time to go there, but Deuteronomy 17 finally lays out what a king should be. And really the qualifications are pretty simple. Don't get a bunch of gold. Don't get a bunch of horses. Don't get a bunch of wives. Get a copy of the Bible and, and lead and follow it, basically, is what Deuteronomy 17, 14, 20 says. Footnote, everything Solomon did the opposite of, by the way. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 speaks of this prophet who will come and speak on behalf of God. Deuteronomy 30 is an important one. Again, think about this. This is fascinating to me. This is early on in the story of Scripture. And in the end of Deuteronomy, after giving the law, God, Moses says, hey, you're not going to keep any of this. All these curses uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, it's quite brutal. A few verses, 14 verses on the blessings, if they'll actually keep it. But then at the end in Deuteronomy 30, he says, you're not going to keep it, but you're going to be judged and you're going to be exiled, but God's not done. He's going to regather his people and restore his people and circumcise your hearts. At the time, I just would have loved to know what the first Israelites to read that, even how they replied as circumcision of the heart. Like, what does that mean? Hurts and heart surgery? Well, it was a prediction of what we'll see ultimately the new covenant. God's going to change us from the inside out. And it started way back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. All right, let's keep moving. Um, let's go to David. Turn over to 2 Samuel 7. Next covenant is the covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7. I warned you this would be a fire hydrant, fire hose. Here's the beautiful thing, though, is as we leave here, if you have these verses down, you can go and read them and make the very same connections I'm trying to show you tonight. Really, it doesn't take anyone smart. It just takes someone with a Bible with cross-references in the middle. 2 Samuel 7, starting verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I'll make for you a great name does it sound familiar like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place 
for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. There's rest. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I think it's a play on words. The idea is a dynasty, again, a great family. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, there's that word, after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Then here's David's response. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So who are the people? Well, now we have the people of Israel under the kings. There's a few hints of the nations being included. There's a place promised. What are the precepts? Well, it's still the law of Moses. What about God's presence? Well, Solomon will build the temple. What about previous covenant connections? Now we know that the offspring of the woman, who will be an offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth, will also be an offspring of David. So this ruler we're waiting for, who now we know will bless the nations, Abraham, now we know who will have a kingdom that will last forever, is going to come through David. We see the king, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, the Old Covenant promised a king. Well, here we go. The place, the name, Genesis 12, 2, back in Abraham, I'll make your name great. Now it's the name of David who will be great. What about pointers to Christ? Well, the very word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means Messiah. I wish we translated it Messiah, the anointed one from Psalm 2 which is about David's son who will have the nations as his heritage. So this son of David, this king, will have a kingdom that will include the nations. David would have a son who would rule forever. David would bring rest. Flip over to Psalm 72 real fast because I love the way it connects David and Abraham. Thinking now of pointers to Christ. Psalm 72 is what we call a messianic psalm. It's Solomon. So he's writing after David. In verse 8, he says, May this king have dominion, not just in Israel's land, but from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 49.10, tribes would bow before Judah. Well, now we know it's also a son of David. Look at verse 17. Speaking of this coming future king, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. What does that remind you of? Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The peoples are now blessed through not just Abraham, but the king. 
So what are we waiting for? We're waiting now for this king who would be an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent, serpent's head, who would be an offspring of Abraham who will bring blessing to the nations, who will be a son of David, who will have a kingdom that will last forever. It's all beginning to come together. By the way, one of the favorite reasons I love to sing Christmas music starting early, I call it incarnation music because the passages we're talking about are really Davidic promise passages. Let me just read some of them to you. Isaiah 9. So again, a prophecy about the coming new covenant, a child is born, a wonderful counselor, mighty God of his government, there'll be no end. There'll be no end on the throne of David. That's a Davidic covenant promise. Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's dad. The spirit of the Lord shall be on him. We could go on and on. There's so much about David that points to Christ. Jesus is the son of David. Let's keep moving, though, now to the new covenant promised. And I'm going to run out of time to read these, so let me just leave my notes here. Jeremiah 31 speaks of the new covenant, says it explicitly. We said it this morning. It's what we, it's what we celebrate in communion every single month, the new covenant in the blood of Christ. And so the idea is full and final forgiveness of sins. No more going to the temple every year. No more bringing the unblemished animal. Finally, God will forgive his people's sins fully, forever. Ezekiel 36 is another great new covenant promise. And the idea is they're picking up on Deuteronomy 30 of the heart circumcision. God would remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In other words, he'll change us from the inside out. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's inward transformation. That's what Israel needed. That's why the prophets promise that that's what's going to happen. Ezekiel 36 also speaks of God pouring out his spirit. That's a gift of the new covenant. Two promises of the new covenant. Full and final forgiveness of sins, the gift of the spirit. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. That's what we just sang about. He breaks the power of canceled sin. That's a Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 lyric right there. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, Jeremiah 31. Make me pure, Ezekiel 36. Isaiah 40, we won't even go there except for the sake of time, but amazing people Israel in exile now they need transformation and the prophets all over especially that section of Isaiah speak of the nations being included what about their place well they're in exile but there are these promises of a future restored land future restored city future restored temple what about the precepts well in Jeremiah 31 he promises that the law will be written on their heart again wonder what they thought when they first heard that. The idea is they're going to now obey God from the hearts. The people had been taken out of Egypt. The Egypt hadn't been taken out of the people. The people had been taken out of Babylon. The Babylon hadn't been taken out of the people. They needed new hearts. They needed new birth. John chapter 3. What about the presence? Well, the glory had departed in Ezekiel. God was no longer present with his people. And the rest of the Old Testament, he never returns until... He returns in the person of Jesus who tabernacles among us. What about previous covenant connections? A new David who will bless the nations. In Jeremiah 31, again, if we had time to go there, it says this new covenant will not be like the old covenant. So here we have it's similar, but it's also different. It's not like the old covenant. It's different in that all now will have their sins forgiven and all will have transformation from the inside out. What about pointers to Christ? Well, man, so much to say. Coming king, suffering servants, 
who bears and bestows the Spirit. Just think of Isaiah 53, he'll come and make sacrifice. Ezekiel 34, God's going to return to his people through David, a fascinating prophecy because David's dead, right? But David will return. Who's he talking about? The son of David, the promised one. All right, finally, new covenant fulfilled. New covenant fulfilled. We have lots of verses, but I like that the Bible starts with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. The first section wants us to know that everything I'm about to say in Matthew is all about what we've already seen. The genealogy, in fact, in Greek, it's Biblos Geneseos, the book of the Genesis of the Messiah, the new Genesis, the again Genesis, the new creation of Jesus the Messiah, son of Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, son of David. Uh, Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah 31 to say the new covenant is here through the death of Christ. Luke 22 is a communion passage. Mark 1 is full of Old Testament quotations. Who are the people? The church defined around the Messiah. Where's the place? We are now in Christ and waiting on the new Jerusalem as we saw this morning. What are the precepts? We're no longer under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ and his apostles. No longer bound to the, the law of Moses, especially think of Uh, all the various stipulations about food and clothing and gardening and the Mosaic law was a particular law for a particular people in a particular place. Now the church is international and Christ gives us our marching orders. What about the presence of God? Well, we have the indwelling spirit of God within us. We are the temple, but we also wait where the presence of God will be the whole world where there'll be no temple, New Jerusalem. Previous covenant connections, man, they are abundance. They're really, the new covenant is the culmination of all the previous covenants that we've seen. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, who brings blessing to the nations and opens it up for us so that now when we trust in Christ, we are the offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. Jesus is the son of David. He is the king. It's his kingdom that will last forever. Jesus is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. All of these, and the beauty of all this is we have the New Testament to see this on every page. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we have seen so far. The new Adam. He brings about a new exodus, freeing us from tyranny. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the temple. We could go on and on and on and on. Pointers to Christ, well, he's come. So the story of scripture is a story about Jesus and God is working out his kingdom through the biblical covenant. Starting in creation, goes bad, new creation in a sense with Noah, makes promises to Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. Then you have the old covenant, the nation is formed, they blow it just like Adam did, they're kicked out of the sacred space. Then we have the covenant with David, the king who will have a place that would, he would reign forever. Then the new covenant foretold, which is mostly what the prophetic books are about. And the two primary gifts are full and final forgiveness of sins and inward transformation through the power of the gift of the spirit. And then the new covenant is now inaugurated. And so what we celebrate is the fact that God's been faithful to these promises. There's still yet more to come though, right? The kingdom is here already, but not yet fully in its consummation. That's what we talked about this morning, the kingdom fully and finally consummated. Time went by extremely fast. I was hoping to do a little Q&A, but I want to let the nursery workers go. I wanted to recommend some books, though. 
This book uh, is on our book table. It's called God's Big Picture. It's a lot shorter than that other one. And really what he does, he doesn't just focus on the covenants, but he tries to tell the story, story of scripture using God's kingdom. I think he uses God's people in God's place under God's rule to talk about the whole Bible. So really helpful resource. Um, I've got three copies here, whoever wants them, two here and one over here. Uh, and again, it's at the book table or it's on Amazon. And then I've written a little book. Now this book's 11 years old. I'm probably embarrassed of it, but what I'm doing in this little book some of you talking now, right? I can work with that. Uh, a really brief walk through these covenants. And so it's called the newness of the new covenant. The focus is on how the new covenant is different than the old covenant. So, all right. Thanks for coming. I know that was a lot. Hope it's been helpful. Hope we can serve as hooks so that as you're in, say, 1 Samuel, well, where am, I, where am I at in the story of Scripture? Well, I'm coming towards the covenant with David in 2 Samuel. I just left the old covenant, and so there's a king coming. Little hooks that will help you as you make your way through a book that can be overwhelming, but if you can see the unity of it, it's accessible and it's glorious.